You want to be careful about generalizing too widely uh, because an enormous number of people coming up through the 40s and 50s simply took advantage of the opportunities to become uh, what we call the men in gray flannel suits, uh, obedient wives uh, raising kids in the suburbs. I mean, that was the, the general co character of life through that period. However, there were others who would become a distinct uh, um, but very obstreperous minority in the 60s when they arrived on the college campuses who interpreted their, their position in the world as a chance to be uh, uh, assertive. Uh, to, uh, the phrase they used from Emerson was to do your own thing, uh, to take advantage of, a free, uh, they, of the freedom that was available to them on the assumption that you could never fall too far in affluent America. So that even if you dropped out, using the phrase that became prominent during that period, uh, you couldn't drop too far. Uh, the society would somehow catch you and sustain you. And therefore, if you were not hung up on um, building a career and putting a lot of money aside, the opportunity to live a very free, uh, creative life uh, was, was possible to you. Now, the, it, it, is those, it is that group of people that became a very interesting group in the uh, 60s when they arrived on the college campuses, because they tended to be the people most um, willing, most prone to protest against any form of restriction, against anything that got in the way of their self-expression. They arrived at college under the assumption uh, that uh, college was for them, not for IBM or for the government or for uh, the, uh, the, the greater American economy. Uh, if you, the, eventually, social critics would call these people narcissistic in the sense that they were very self-centered. Uh, but from another point of view, what they were doing was taking advantage uh, of a unique situation in world history, of, of an affluence that gave people the opportunity to ask deep questions. Who am I? What do I want? What do I really want in the world? What do I want independently of what my parents want, what my teachers want, what the, you know, the, what the government wants? Uh, because what uh, IBM and the corporations wanted was uh, loyal employees, and what the government eventually wanted was obedient cannon fodder. Well, here were a group of kids who hadn't been raised. Uh, to, uh, uh, to be obedient or docile or uh, loyal, but uh, had a strong sense of their own values and their, at least a sense that they could create their own identity in the world. These are the people who became the most um, difficult, resistant uh, elements of the protest uh, of the 60s. Now, I'm not talking about you know, mil millions and millions of people. This is not a whole generation, but it's a very interesting segment of a generation that decided to claim the opportunity for freedom and happiness that was presented to them. What kids, white kids, growing up in suburbia, what kind of uh, social pressures or any kind of pressure was on kids that might make kids react the way they did a generation later? That generation uh, growing up through that period, the first post-war generation of young people, uh, was being raised in, a, I'm talking about middle-class white kids, they were being raised in a, in a period of affluence that was unprecedented. Uh, affluence uh, in a very special sense of the word that I think is no longer accessible to us, affluence with a capital A, uh, meaning the sky's the limit, uh, no environmental or ecological restraints, nobody could even spell the word ecology in those days, uh, endless amounts of merchandise, uh, uh, no problems about uh, waste or uh, uh, resources, energy, of that, anything of that sort. Uh, and a sense that uh, there, were, um, there were careers available for everyone. Uh, the easy life was uh, available to anyone who uh, qualified, and uh, qualifying was uh, quite simple. You simply went to college, in many cases for free. Um, I went to college for free, uh, literally for free. <laughs> um, and in that situation, there, were, um, there was an, an openness about um, um, childhood and about child rearing um, that was filled by um, 
a new idea, Dr. Spock's idea is about being permissive with your kids. You know, don't, uh, don't freak out if they, um, if they rebel, if they talk back, if you catch them masturbating or something of that sort, don't get uh, hung up on it. Um, and uh, uh, this, is, this was a distinctly new way to be raised in the world. And it allowed um, for a whole generation that I suppose we would now call spoiled, spoiled kids, which from another point of view simply meant kids who had very high expectations in life with respect to freedom and happiness. They thought life was about being free and about being happy. And they carried those expectations forward into high school and into college. Uh, and brought with them a kind of um, um, uh, a level of expectation that was simply unprecedented in, I, I would say, in world history. The word normal. Now, almost everybody I interviewed didn't feel normal of the generation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They felt the other people were normal. That usually people, they said the cheerleaders and the football players were the only people who felt normal. But I interviewed a cheerleader and she didn't feel normal either. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose normal meant the sort of uh, images of life that you saw in uh, the situation comedies of the 40s and, and 50s, um, a sort of a prescribed identity for um, men and women, husbands and wives, kids. Hey, you look at the old, these programs go on and on, you know, they're still in a rerun, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver. And what you see there is um, the ideal of life that uh, was being uh, promoted by corporate America and by the government. It, uh, there was a standard way to be a man and a husband, to be a woman and a wife, to be, a, to be kids. Uh, and uh, usually these people were surrounded by uh, a suburban affluence, a, you know, a station wagon or two in the garage, a refrigerator filled with food. Uh, life was uh, comfortable, provided, of course, you fulfilled uh, these prescribed roles in life. Now that's the point at which I think some kind of friction or tension began to develop for this generation, at least for some of them. It was the tension between opportunities for freedom, to do your own thing, to become your own person, and another, on the other hand, a repertory of prescribed identities uh, constantly being pushed at you through the media, uh, through uh, the advertising of the period. You know, I would say one of the landmark publications of that period that had far more influence than perhaps any of the important novels written was Mad Magazine. If you go back to the original Mad Magazine uh, in the early days, uh, Bill Gaines was putting out in that period. I mean, the satire of the standard American way of life was absolutely vicious. It was a, you know, a vicious satirical treatment of middle-class American life. That magazine was being read in bedrooms by 10, 11, 12-year-olds through this period who were learning from that magazine that their parents were laughing stock. These are the kinds of kids that began to take on the characteristics of a, a Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye. Uh, without ever reading the book. I mean, they looked around them at the adult world and saw that it was filled with people who had sold out. <laughs> uh, they, were, uh, they were hypocrites. Uh, that's, what, that's the way Holden Caulfield saw the world. That's the way um, uh, a number of young people growing up through that period saw the world. As a matter of fact, Catcher in the Rye was being prominently assigned in uh, high school um, English classes all through the period. What would you expect children to learn from reading uh, a book? like that, uh, a certain cynicism about uh, their parents. Now, on the other hand, you know, just, just you have to understand that the parents were coming out of um, a depression and a war, uh, and they had been living in very reduced circumstances for a very long period of time. Suddenly, times were good in America. Uh, it was the biggest boom in world history. America was king of the international industrial mountain, and uh, they simply took advantage of the opportunity, finally, to have some spending money, to have a career, and they wanted to be generous with their children. But in being generous with their children, they were giving their children a chance to become spoiled brats. 
uh, to be outspoken and self-assertive. And, uh, and eventually those kids would arrive on a college campus where they would treat uh, their teachers, their professors, the administration, and ultimately the United States government and the, uh, and the United States Army in much the same way. When the Woodstock Nation was once polled in Rolling Stone magazine in 1976, 85% said that they came from the suburbs. Mm -hmm. The suburb is a phenomenon that still exists, but people today don't realize what that phenomenon was or how important that was in this whole mix for white middle America. I mean, black America had another experience. Yeah. The suburbs that grew up following the Second World War were predominantly an, um, uh, a manifestation of the affluence of the society. Uh, the suburban lifestyle involved um, uh, commuting, um, and uh, that therefore it was an extremely expensive, very extravagant way of life. Uh, a society that can afford to put its whole workforce many, many miles away from the central city uh, and have them commute in by private automobiles is a, is a very rich society. So I would say the, you know, the foremost feature of living in the suburbs while you were tied to the city, usually for work or shopping and so on, that was still true through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, before great suburban uh, malls opened up and so on. Middle class people were being offered the possibility, the opportunity to have a home of their own, a yard of their own, uh, to own automobiles, to become part of what is certainly one of the most wasteful and extravagant uh, patterns of living ever, ever invented, ever conceived of. But we could afford it. America could afford it easily, uh, along with you know endless disposable um, <laughs> uh, merchandise and uh, you know college educations and credit cards galore. I mean, the affluence of that period is a, a landmark. It, it is nothing like what we have now, where we have a sense often of constraints, limits of growth. You know, but through the the period we're talking about here, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the, those who were living this um, suburban lifestyle in America were um, the heirs, the beneficiaries of an affluence that was unprecedented. Could you describe that there were two groups? There was most kids going in to get an education, then there was this other group that mm -hmm. I, they came from lefty parents or they were there's certain kinds of backgrounds mm -hmm. in high school. Or when we talk about the protest politics of the 60s, starting in about 62, 63, moving up through the early 70s, uh, but when we talk about the, the, that uh, earlier period of protest, we're talking about a strict minority of a minority. After all, it's only a minority of people who are college age and going to college. Because after a certain point, one of the characteristics of a youth culture, which may not be the best thing in the world to have, but we had it, and <laughs> certainly we still have it today, but as that pe the, the, the kids fall under the influence of their peers. And then it becomes quite unpredictable what mix of influences will, will impinge upon them. Uh, so it's not entirely a matter of, of uh, uh, family background, because you are talking about people who will leave home, go away to school, and fall into the influence of other people entirely. Uh, sometimes uh, t teachers, professors, but more often their fellow students. And uh, what will draw them, what will attract them? You know, a certain kind of a love affair uh, might. <laughs> I mean, one of the foremost characteristics of protest on college campuses was the demand by students that college, the college, the university, tailor 
its curriculum to their needs and not the other way around, that they were not there to be mass processed for the benefit of the government or the corporations. But they, and so we had this um, appearance through the 60s of what were called free universities. And the characteristic of free universities was students defining what they wanted to study. Right? Uh, and um, it was a variety of subjects. I mean, from mysticism to macrame to you know, to radical politics. I mean, to uh, tarot cards. I mean, but it was all the kinds of things that universities don't normally teach. In which some students said, "Well, maybe I'm interested in them. Maybe that's what I want to study. Maybe this is my thing." in the world to do. Well, what they were aware of was the pressure of um, families and uh, official authority uh, pressing them in the direction of some other identity they should be cultivating to become uh, successful uh, brokers, bankers, uh, lawyers, uh, white-collar workers. And this sense that that's not me, I'm something else, I, I want to go in some other direction, became for many people a source of tremendous stress and tension in their lives. And in that sense, you could say that they felt alienated from an identity they had yet to create and assert in the world. Uh, the desire of people to define themselves, to find their own identity in the world, on the assumption, on the basis that we can now afford to do this. We no longer have to be a society that has very few identities, uh, and in which there is one very large identity where most people belong called the masses. Nobody wants to be that anymore. People want to have a sense of, uh, you know, even if it's expressed in a you know, trivial and bizarre way, they want to have a sense that they are their own, they are the captains of their own soul, and masters of their own fate. Uh, and they may sometimes be deeply deluded in, to, about that, but the feeling is there, the need is there. And I take that to be a significant new plateau in cultural history. It certainly makes the world a much more interesting place when you have this grand variety of, of lifestyles, as we call them, before us. When you say, were you a member of the counterculture, to an average person aged 39, they say yes. Hmm. If they smoked marijuana, if they grew their hair long, if they dated a girl differently or a boy differently, mm -hmm. if they hung out with their friends, how are we to evaluate, was this truly a youth revolution taking place in this whole period of 63 to 73? Hmm. That's the period I'm talking about. When I was looking um, around for a way to give some historical background to what I called a counterculture, I found myself, believe it or not, going all the way back to the um, Romantic movement of the early 19th century. And one of the most important aspects of that, uh, uh, that movement was its deep suspicion, if not hostility, of industrialism. Because the Romantic movement corresponds to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the Western world. And my thought was that what we saw happening in uh, post-World War II America through the 50s and the 60s uh, was that a lot of romantic values, values pioneered by romantic artists and poets of more than a century before, had finally found a large audience, a large public. Now, the ideas had been retailed along the way by um, many other thinkers. But the essential, the most interesting part of the um, rebellion of the 60s, from my point of view, uh, was uh, that um, protest against something that goes a little deeper than immediate issues of politics and justice. Now, that was always there, issues of civil rights and of free speech and uh, the whole protest against uh, McCarthyism in America uh, and concern for what we called the other America, meaning uh, uh, poverty in America. Uh, all of that was there. but. 
Beyond that, there was another level of protest that eventually emerged, and this involved asking very deep questions, as the old romantic poets had, of the rightness and rationality of an urban and industrial culture. And the whole gesture, you know, of dropping out, of living poor, of dressing uh, in a funky way, of letting your hair grow long, of pursuing the arts, or dope, <laughs> which incidentally all the romantic artists uh, were, uh, went, were into. Um, if, uh, all of those things are a protest against something more than immediate issues of social justice, immediate issues of politics. They are, a, they are asking deep questions of an urban and industrial order. It is not by any means fortuitous that what we have in the way of an environmental movement, of an ecology movement, a sense of our connection, our obligations to nature, comes out of the period we're talking about. And that is a very deep, represents a very deep criticism of urban industrial culture. Uh, namely, that it is a culture that may be toxic to the environment and then ultimately to us, that we may be killing the biosphere and therefore killing ourselves and many other species. Now that perception of, uh, of industrial culture, a very negative, very critical perception, is something that goes deeper than immediate issues of politics. You're now talking about issues that span centuries or millennia, a sense of obligation to the planet as a whole, the biosphere as a whole. That's what I was cons most interested in, that this is the first large-scale protest against the values of urbanism and industrialism. And the first voices to raise those issues were the romantics at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They had no influence over it. Industrialism simply ran its course comes the end of the Second World War. In this period of affluence, we arrive at a generation uh, which is able to resume that critique, resume that protest, and ask deep questions, not only about our political order, but our cultural values. Is this the best way to live? Um, are we um, perhaps damaging our environment, our our, our obligations to all other living things in a way that is you know, just as serious as any issue of social justice. I feel that that range of issues begins to get beyond politics and becomes cultural in character. And while these questions, these issues were not always raised in the most graceful way by very young people who are often operating out of sheer instinct, <laughs> uh, just sort of a gut response to what they saw about them, nevertheless the issues were raised in a big loud and prominent way. And I feel that if you pay attention to those, those issues, those, especially those cultural issues, uh, that you will find the real value of that, of that protest. I'd, li I'd like to add one more thing to this, that ultimately, and perhaps at the deepest level, what a lot of the uh, members of the counterculture came to see was that um, changing people's cultural values may have to do with changing their state of consciousness. And hence you get this fascination with anything that will change people's mode of perception. They open the doors of perception, right? It could be drugs. The fascination with drugs was not fun in games in the 60s. For many people, it was a way to see reality differently and hopefully, therefore, to change your values. Now, myself, I was always very dubious that this could be done by just dosing on drugs, but it was one of the ideas at the time, but it's connected with a very deep uh, purpose, namely to change the way people experience 
themselves, others, and the world around them. And it also carried over then into certain religious disciplines. The fascination with Oriental religions was a fascination with a mystical mode of experience. Um, any of these attempts to cultivate, to strengthen the, the, the sub-intellective or non-intellective response to life were essentially attempts to change people's consciousness with the hope that you could then change the culture <laughs> that sat on top of that state of consciousness. This is a, a formidable project. And if it wasn't always carried out very gracefully, and it wasn't, you know, I saw a lot of my students ruined by this fascination with drugs. What, was, what lay behind it is something still worth considering. It appears to be generational. Yeah. It is a generation of people. It is a generation gap, a word we also don't yeah. hear anymore. Yeah. They, had, uh, they had the opportunity to cultivate new values, to experiment with life uh, in a way that often um, could be either very abrasive or very instructive to the people around them. But often what people in that age range produced in the way of ideas, values, protests could prove to be infectious far beyond um, their peers and uh, on the society generally. And so while um, many people felt put off, I know from my own experience through that period, put off by the, the sort of adolescent quality of a lot of the po protest politics and countercultural activities of that period, nevertheless, in the midst of all of those things, possibilities and life values were being raised that many people responded to. I mean, I am amazed when I look around me now at how freely uh, we can in the media, uh, in the society generally, in, uh, in, in polite society, uh, around a dinner table or at lunch and in my classrooms, we can talk about matters of sexuality that could never be talked about openly uh, through the 40s, 50s, and even up into the early 60s. Uh, our willingness to um, accept many different um, uh, sexual preferences, lifestyles in our society is much greater. The range of social tolerance is much greater than it was before. And if people still feel it's not enough, they should know what it was like back in the, uh, the 40s and the 50s. I mean, you, there, was, there was simply no openness on these issues. Um, uh, so, uh, and then the willingness of people to uh, come together to uh, talk about uh, their, uh, their grievances, what we call, uh, you know, um, we called it in the 60s consciousness raising, uh, which is simply a sort of free confessional style uh, of life, uh, letting it all hang out, talking about uh, what once would have been very private, embarrassing things. But all you have to do is make a, make a comparison between uh, how, how much more open um, our society is today, uh, the way it was in the 40s and 50s. And something happened in between. Well, what I can see that happened in between was a very noisy period of, of, of protest when people opened up uh, areas of life of that uh, had been closed before. And while people may have rejected the kids and the hippies and the flower children and so on, by God, they certainly took advantage of the, uh, the spirit of, of many of those movements, which is a spirit of, of openness and, and, and tolerance, and uh, put it into practice. Oh, take something like um, the prominence in our society today of the four-letter word. You know, I sit down and watch movies today in which from the opening scene on, you have a run of language which as a, as a kid, if I had used it, I would have been punished severely, right? And that remained the case, you know, all the way up through the 50s. You realize when, when Lucille Ball got pregnant, they couldn't use the word pregnant on 
television. Uh, a movie that used the word virgin in the 50s was, uh, could not be approved by the, the Hayes office and the censors. Uh, it was condemned for that. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, and I can remember it fairly specifically, uh, you had students arriving on campus who would get up in the class and use these forbidden words. And the sky did not fall, right? Life went on. And suddenly, everyone was freed up. But I'm talking about only one aspect of life, uh, one aspect of the, the period we're, we're discussing. And suddenly, everybody sort of, you know, after an initial shock, frees up. And something has happened. And influence has been released in the world. Well, I'm suggesting the same thing happened with, with sexual practices, with nudity. Some people would see this as the corruption of the society, and some people would see this as the, the liberation of the society. Um, but things get said uh, that uh, were n you could not say before. Criticisms get raised that we felt it was difficult to raise before. And all I can suggest to you is that um, often the influence is a matter of seeing or hearing, being exposed to an example of somebody doing something that opens up possibilities for you in life. And you may never then even remember the situation in which that became possible for you, uh, but it, it happens. Well, let's put it this way. As of the early 60s, what you had was a, um, a range of protest on the social scene in America, which was many-sided and quite diffuse. I mean, you had people campaigning for free speech on college campuses. Uh, you had black Americans uh, campaigning for equal access to employment uh, and education. You had people campaigning for um, the legalization of marijuana. Uh, you had people uh, running the, uh, the, the sexual liberation front. Um, eventually, you would have um, a lively and important feminist movement on the scene, other people moving off in the direction of, uh, of the environment and ecology. Um, so you have a diffuse scene filled with protest, filled with discontent, um, but without um, necessarily any focus that would bring all of these discontented people together. Uh, what Vietnam did, for better or for worse, was quite simply provide a focus around which all of these discontented uh, elements uh, could rally and use the war in Vietnam as evidence uh, for the sort of protest uh, they were making. Um, black Americans could see that the war was primarily being fought by poor black boys hauled out of the ghetto to go to Vietnam. Uh, the war had that element to it. Uh, but on the other hand, it touched the lives of everyone else in the society. In a, in a, it was a life and death matter for anyone passing through that age group and for their parents, who eventually, of course, got drawn into uh, serious protest about the war. I mean, ultimately, the war became um, grist for everybody's mill. Everyone who had an axe to grind in America could find uh, evidence for injustice and uh, the failure of our leadership and uh, the deception in high places, they could find it in the war. So the war became a common ground that could be shared by everyone, and it was a peculiar common ground because it was a matter literally of life and death. Uh, those who were up against the war or who had loved ones up against the war uh, had to act uh, with great urgency. Uh, the war served to call into question uh, American leadership and the meaning of patriotism and uh, our you know, national interest uh, uh, on up to the highest levels of American society. So it became the one big issue that monopolized all the protests. Uh, to the degree that it unified the protest and gave it a focus, it gave it a lot more um, uh, uh, power. But to the degree that the war swamped every other issue, 
uh, eclipsed every other issue, as perhaps it had to at the time, a lot might have been lost along the line. I mean, I've had the feeling that by the time you reach the end of the war, early to middle 70s, you're into the Watergate era, uh, which more or less uh, proves what everyone in the protest movement had been saying was criminally wrong about American government, that the fight against the war had exhausted the forces of protest in the society, so that an awful lot that was still on the agenda was put into almost uh, suspended animation indefinitely. <laughs> do you have anything to say about this do-it-now attitude? I mean, is that an aspect of the youth rebellion? The well, you have to spell that out a bit more. I what do you mean, mean that if, there's, if you can wait four years or do it now, you should do it now, you should change the university now, oh. you should go to Europe now, you should take this substance if it's available to you now. Don't mm -hmm. think it out. Don't plan it out. Don't don't think of the future career that may be in all youth, but I have a feeling it was very strong in the counterculture, that it wouldn't have been, I remember, whatever it was, we should do it. I don't know quite how to get a, a grip on that, except to say that there, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things called deeply into question was a standard middle-class value of deferred gratification. You know, deferred gratification means <laughs> waiting 40 or 50 years to get your... <laughs> to get your kicks in life uh, after you have earned it, right? But I think it is characteristic of, uh, of youth down through the ages not to, not to opt for deferred gratification if it has another possibility. And certainly uh, with the prominence of young people in the protest uh, of, of this period, you would expect, uh, wouldn't you, that there would be a, a no, um, no respect for um, good old-fashioned bourgeois deferred gratification, but a sense of now. The word now was very prominent through the 60s. Uh, um, uh, I remember the Living Theater in New York did a play called Paradise Now. <laughs> and of course, most of the, you know, if you got out to protest anything, you always asked the question, when do you want it? And the answer was always, of course, now. So uh, now, you know, the, the sense of immediacy was, was a prominent aspect of, uh, of, the, of the period. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm not sure I'm, I'm still in touch, though, with what you're asking so do me. You, yeah. if, if, Re rephrase the question. Okay, if I interviewed these 70 people, that I've interviewed yeah. so far, and all the ones that relate to this in any way, I say, what did you do between 1971 and 1973? I changed my life, is what they're yeah. saying. Right. I changed. I, I went back to the land. Okay. I took a different yeah. kind of job. I gave up on money. Now, that's mm. okay when you're a kid. Yeah. It becomes different when you... Sure. You, you're sure. implying, or you, you, you're saying that you think that, that people went on and had families, but they didn't just do that. If I were asked what endures out of that period and still characterizes our, our society today, um, while things have changed in many ways and we've passed through a much more conservative period, indeed a period of backlash through the 80s, there are certain things that have continued. Um, uh, I, would, I would certainly identify um, a changed sense of identity on the part of a great many people. Uh, this, the, the desire to become their own person to express themselves in their own peculiar way. I think there's much more uh, concern about doing that and much more tolerance for seeing that happen on the part of our fellow citizens than there would have been in the 40s or, or the 50s. So I think there's been a profound shift of identity in our society, which is related in, in, ter in, uh, in turn to um, the, uh, the affluence of the society, the opportunity that's available to people uh, through leisure and education to achieve some form, deep or shallow, of self-knowledge. Uh, 
And that, I think, has remained widespread in our society. Um, a, a much more uh, lively uh, sense of our um, ecological responsibilities, that flows out of the period of protest. In, in a sense, the last phase of countercultural protest arrived at the issues of the environment. By 70, 71, 72, you had the beginning of our contemporary environmental movement and was born out of the protest of, of that period. And that has remained, that has become commonplace in our society today. This, this issue has really taken root uh, in a way that I think nobody would have predicted, uh, even in the middle 60s, that this would be an enduring influence upon the society. On the other hand, I think it has to be said that, um, that uh, the American middle class, um, with respect to its orientation toward money, success, uh, family life, and so on, has certainly proved to be far more tenacious than anybody would have predicted uh, in the middle of the, the, the countercultural rebellion of the 60s. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the underground newspapers that, of that period, um, they are filled with a sense that everything can be changed overnight in, in America. And uh, you know, the, the walls are going to come tumbling down. We're going to transform the society totally until, you know. Now, th this, I felt this was far-fetched at the time. But even I would not have um, predicted how, how tenacious um, the, uh, the American corporation is, the American middle class way of life is. Um, you don't overturn something like that. You, can, you change it around the edges, and perhaps you infuse it with some, more val uh, some new values. But you don't um, simply get rid of it, scrap it, within a single generation. Uh, you transform it, perhaps, from within over a much longer period of time. So I think you know, some of the hopes for paradise now, total revolution uh, back in the 60s were, were quite unrealistic. And some of us knew that at the time. Uh, perhaps we weren't quite in, you know, involved in it. I was a little, little too old to be part of that myself. And so perhaps I had a little more perspective on it. Um, but the American middle class way of life is connected with many values people want. Uh, and ultimately come around to wanting. And the problem then becomes to integrate those values with other things you want in life, which are not uh, necessarily compatible with being a respectable middle-class citizen. The major change that's happened in the background, has, uh, uh, as I see it, is um, much less confidence uh, in the late 70s through the 80s into the 90s that the affluence is here to stay. Um, I deal now with uh, students who are very job-worried, <laughs> survival-worried. Uh, they no longer have the sense of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, that the sky is the limit, that there is no limit uh, to growth, to affluence, that uh, we can produce a level of wealth uh, which is uh, astronomical, and everybody can be in on it. Um, we have learned that that is probably an impossible scenario. And I think it has made everybody a little more worried, uh, starting perhaps with um, uh, problems like uh, having to wait hours to buy gasoline through the 70s, the sense that there are resources that will not be there forever. Uh, the constant fear uh, that has been brought home to us, that the environment isn't going to hold up forever. Uh, and then fluctuations in the economy that have rattled people's confidence that they can indeed survive. You know, I feel that the images that uh, come at us all the time of homeless people uh, uh, chasten the expectations of many Americans and make them very frightened. 
um, because they know that those homeless people include people who simply had a stroke of bad luck and dropped through the bottom of the society. Uh, it is no wonder that I am now dealing with students who, are, who have uh, much less uh, security and uh, have diminished expectations in life. And it was that affluence with a capital A that made a lot of difference uh, through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I remember then dealing with students who were under the impression that they could drop out and be sustained for the rest of their lives at some decent um, level of, uh, of subsistence that would allow them to write poetry, uh, sing folk songs, uh, live on the land, uh, <laughs> hitchhike uh, across the country, uh, smoke dope, uh, you know, all of these things, and that, there was, um, that this was a possibility for everyone in the society. So expectations have changed dramatically uh, through the 70s into the 80s.